This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good. You can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time. But you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Mike O'Neill out of Philadelphia. Uh, Mike has got a really unique background. He was one of the top uh, catastrophic injury defense lawyers nationwide uh, and did a lot of work for UPS whenever they had a horrible crash anywhere on the country. And now he is a plaintiff's lawyer. <laughs> so I wanted uh, I got to beat Mike recently last year, uh, learned a lot just from our, our conversations we've had so far. And I thought, man, he'd be really useful to come in and talk about some of what he's learned. So how are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing well, Michael. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about you. We're all, you know, our listeners just meet you. So what do we need <laughs> sure. to know about Michael Neal? Sure. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm a lawyer in Philadelphia. Uh, I've uh, practiced in, Phil- in Philadelphia for the entirety of my career. So since I uh, graduated from law school in 1998, went to Villanova. Um, my practice, though, almost immediately became a national practice. So from certainly at least the early 2000s, about 2002 or so, um, my practice, while well, my office was in Philadelphia, my practice was was across the country and, and really focused on defending uh, motor vehicle companies, uh, uh, motor carriers in catastrophic injury cases. How'd you end up getting to do that? It's kind of a long story. You you and I share a similar background and that both of us were big firm lawyers initially. I was at DLA Piper uh, initially, and one of our clients was UPS. Uh, we did uh, a lot of UPS transactional work, uh, postal rate work of all things. Uh, my firm did. Uh, and then in early 2000s, about 2002, UPS was looking for uh, what they wanted to call core core attorneys uh, that, that could do national work on their behalf, on their higher level work. Uh, so we got in, in there uh, as, as a litigator. I started doing that and uh, we just grew it from there. And uh, so how many years did you do the, you know, the national work on catastrophic uh, defense? Yeah, I was I was UPS's National Catastrophic Injury Council for over 15 years. So there was a small group of us that, that did the catastrophic injury work for UPS. Uh, and it was really our firm at the time and then King and Spalding and Southeastern uh, United States that did it as well. Um, and and that was that was the primary focus of my practice. We were outside counsel. We were we were engaged by the company. We weren't in-house. Uh, but we really focused, and I focused certainly my practice on defending uh, the company in, in some of their worst cases across the country. And so why does a comp- like a big company like a UPS and there's other companies that do that, you know, get certain lawyers to handle the work 
on the biggest stuff nationwide rather than going to find people in each locality? I think it's consistency in, in the defense of the company. Um, it's not the company is a, a obviously is this huge, you know, monolithic company that that really has a lot going on. It's not the type of thing where you can't just hand somebody a case for UPS and say, here, go defend them. You really need to know the company. You need to know uh, know how the company's operated, how they train their employees, uh, specifically who trains the employees. You really kind of need to learn the company. And anybody can do it, but it would take a long time to really, really learn that system. And then you just like to think that that they thought we did pretty pretty well for them and got good results and, and just kept giving us more and more work. So when, let's say there was... A catastrophic crash out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, they're three, never they're never anywhere where you want to be. Yeah. It doesn't seem at three in the morning on a Saturday. Does a company like UPS or they or any big motor carrier do, do they wait until there's a lawsuit filed to start doing stuff? No, uh, I would have uh, my phone would ring if not that night, even in the middle of the night, depending on if it's bad enough accident. I would certainly learn by the next morning. When I was a younger attorney doing this, I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you, remembering in my mind's eye getting a call on a Saturday afternoon when I was playing with my young children in the yard, and I had to go to Ardmore, Oklahoma, immediately. Uh, and that's that's not irregular. That's how they do it. And and we have boots in the ground. We like to call it. We would have boots in the ground almost immediately. Um, we'd have a local lawyer immediately there. We'd have a local uh, reconstructionist there if possible, and then. We'd get there as soon as possible and we would bring in, again, depending on the case, bring in a national reconstructionist immediately sometimes. Um, the, the fact is, is that marshalling the evidence while it's still fresh is really the most important thing to do in any any catastrophic case. Um, I had a case in West Virginia one time. It was an ice storm. It was terrible weather. And uh, it was in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, really pretty area. But we got there. And long story short, when the when the police initially, they were still using uh, older devices to map the scenes. Um, when the police initially did it, they, they misidentified the area of impact. And they actually put us in oncoming lane of traffic where obviously that would be bad for the UPS vehicle time but we were out there so early we found gouge marks that were fresh we were able to bring the police back to the scene that day had them identified and they said you know what you guys are right and they redid all their work that's something that wouldn't have happened if we weren't there immediately you'd fast forward five months and you'd have a police report saying that we were the bullet vehicle in the other vehicles lane of travel and we'd be liable for the for the accident also the and y'all would get people to talk to the police officers before the reports were written I was standing there as the police were writing the reports, literally. Whereas the, and the plaintiff lawyer might not even know that. They, they wouldn't know that. They wouldn't know that. Matter of fact, you know, I, mean, I don't know if we could share this here or not, but literally that case, the police officer, I stood over him and I said, listen, I'm just letting you know, if you write a second report on this and, and you know, they were doing, they were using the, um, uh, what was that old system before they started doing the, uh, the laser in any event, um, I said, if you if you write a separate report and you have both reports, you're going to get beat up. You know, you're right now. And he's like, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to write over the first report. Plaintiff's counsel would have never had any idea that that conversation took place. I mean, think of the digging as a, as a plaintiff's lawyer. Think of the digging you would need to do just to learn that that conversation took place. You'd never you'd never learn it. Yeah. And that report never existed. I guess that's a 
reason to not always accept the police report as gospel. <laughs> no, that, I, that's, <laughs> you know, in that case, we were right. But how yeah. many other instances are there out there where it's not as clear cut as that? And you do have somebody talking to the law enforcement immediately and first responders immediately. And really, you're shaping the narrative out of the gate. And that's what that's what we did. You know, part of it was, sure, being a lawyer, but also part of it was kind of being a psychologist with first responders and attempting to shape the narrative such that, the you know, they were putting the accent in the best light possible for my clients from 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 jump. Right. How does a if a, a plaintiff lawyer is lucky enough to get hired soon after a crash? How does the plaintiff lawyer combat that? Listen, they've got to get out there. They've got to talk to the same people. You've got to talk to the police. You know, you'd be amazed the number. You know, police will talk to you. Uh, people think that they won't, but they will. They'll they'll, they'll talk to you. And the earlier, the better, frankly, uh, because as time goes, they kind of you know lock down, and then they won't talk to you, and they'll have to go through subpoenas, you know, or or, or other whatever jurisdiction you're in. However, you're going to talk to them. Uh, talk to everybody you can. Go pull witnesses. Go to houses. We would go door to door houses around accident scenes if it was a package car for instance in a residential neighborhood you go to door to door to see if anybody saw anything you'd be amazed at what you could find and these are these are things that we just would typically do as a matter of course which we would not see done on the other side so we're identifying witnesses we're identifying markers in the roadway have an engineering firm come with you and don't just send in your engineering firm to scenes accident scenes i see that done a lot for some reason i don't you know i don't know if people think they're saving money and they may be but they're certainly not getting a grasp of the of the complete picture of the accident when they do that go out there with them walk the scene with your experts have your experts show you things in that case i was telling you about west virginia i was actually the one walking in the middle of the road that saw the gouge mark and just happened to ask my engineer hey what's this this looks fresh and it changed the entire com- complexion of that case so i can't i can't stress the importance of getting out there and touching things, smelling things, actually being at the scene. You know, I, I recently had some something similar. There was a, a pedestrian hit by an 18-wheeler driver late at night, and there's a big question is, was he in the lane of traffic or was he off the lane of traffic? And did the, the, the 18-wheeler driver go off the road? And if the police report took the 18-wheeler driver's word for it. It was not an experienced reconstructionist, although they did paint the scene. But, you know, I went out there myself and I just saw there's not a mark of evidence on the roadway in the land travel. Right. Uh, and we were able to uh, get out there with our reconstructionist. But had I not seen it with my own eyes, I don't think I would have been able to. And then seeing where the where the kid ended up afterwards, seeing everything else, it was so clear to me what happened when I was there. It would not have been as clear to me with photos and talking to somebody. And we were able to... Very quickly, we didn't even get to do a deposition in that case. They didn't have enough insurance, and uh, there's no broker or anything involved. And we just sent them a, uh, a draft recon report and explained to them why we were right and they were wrong. And I think they they obviously had someone out there too, and they knew that we were right and they were wrong. And yeah, just paid their policy. Pedestrian it. strike cases are some of the most important to be out there immediately because there there isn't there's typically aren't gouge marks in a roadway. Right. There's not, and sometimes there's not even significant damage to the power unit or to the to the vehicle that hit. Them. Right. So it's it's super important to be out there and see you know biological evidence. Yeah. We, we we were out there you know, <laughs> which is a nice way to say you know blood, blood and tissue and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know the 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 father of the decedent his uh, his pastor was good friends with our referring lawyer and so we got out there within 48 hours and it really made a difference and another one is a tire case Uh, and everybody said that the tire tread was missing Uh, the 
police officer, the police didn't keep the tire tread. It was a rollover fatality. And, you know, people had gone out to the scene and no one could see it. And then we were just looking for the scene. We actually, there wasn't a police report yet. We were at the wrong scene at first. We right, saw some, right. some tire marks going off the road around the area where the tow truck driver was. Sure. And we ran into a border patrol person that was on the Mexican-American border. And we asked him, no, no, that was further down the road. I remember. I didn't work it, but I remember it. But I can give you the number of someone who did work it. And so he gives us the cell phone number of another border patrol guy. And he met us at the scene uh, just because we called him and asked him to. And then he goes, oh, yeah, I know where the tire tread was. I went and put it over there so no one would mess with it. In the, in the it field was like, or something. It was like, yeah, way off the road yep. by a fence. Yep. And we went over there and we got it. And then forensically it matched up. It was the right kind of tread and everything. And, and it made a huge difference because the defense in those cases always where your tread's all worn down you wore the tire out we found the tread it still had good tread on it it was a defect and you know going back to your point about getting out there you're amazed typically you can't be there you know if I was flying to the Midwest or even the West Coast I'm not going to be there before the scene is cleaned up more often than not but even just walking the scene you'd be amazed to find the things that the tow companies when they clean up scenes like that miss and you're finding fenders that may or may not have evidence on them and things of that nature that you know the tow company doesn't care they're not looking to reconstruct the accident they want to get the roadway cleared and and and, you know cars going again but there's always you know debris and things like that around that they didn't collect that may or may not be important so it goes right back to what we're talking about get out there walk the scene uh on your own and do it yourself uh it's it's vital before going to more of the experience stuff, at some point you made a decision that you wanted to be a plaintiff's lawyer instead of uh, being a catastrophic defense <laughs> lawyer. I did. Uh, well, I, I've, all, I, I, I've been a catastrophic injury lawyer, I would say, defense or otherwise, my right. entire career. Um, Love you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. You know what? It's fun work. It's interesting work. And I, I like to say, like, I, I couldn't, if you gave me the $100,000 car A, car B case, I couldn't you know, I couldn't efficiently litigate that because I just don't know how. But at the same time, you give me the $10 million, you know, commercial motor vehicle versus car or other commercial. I'm completely comfortable uh, with litigating those cases. And they're just different animals. I'm, I, you know this. I mean, you've done both. And I'm sure you know that these are not the same animals at all. Um, you know, people who do car A, car B cases and do them well, I know a lot of them. I couldn't do what they do, uh, but I, I can do what I can do. So I've been a, a catastrophic injury uh, lawyer my entire career. I've always I've always been curious, I guess, about the other side. Um, and, and anybody who's worked with me in the past isn't surprised to know that I've done what I've done. Um, I would be the person that when we would have focus groups, I would always play the part of the plaintiff's lawyer every single time. And I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed trying to, to play with uh, my presentations and, and mm-hmm. trying to get as big a verdict as possible. And then on, on the other hand, too, when I would be defending cases, I, I just saw a lot of lack of representation, quality representation of a lot of people. I got even on the big cases, even the big cases, you'd be amazed. The problem is, is that you get lawyers who we were talking about before might be great personal injury lawyers, but just aren't comfortable or just don't know how to litigate a commercial motor vehicle case. I don't have the time to litigate because yeah. of what they have their practice set up. And and I, I fear that sometimes they think, well, you know what? It's this is I'm going to retire on this. I'm not going to refer it. I'm going to handle it myself. And then by the time we get to trial, they're, they, they might know they're in over their head, but it's kind of too late to undo what's been done already. I mean, and, you know, I, I would get defense verdicts on case. I got a defense defense verdict in, in, in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, uh, on an intersectional collision case where the car that we T-boned had the right of way. Um, had back, the woman had back surgery, and it was just, it, it was 
bad lawyering. And at the end of the day, I walked away from that being like, geez, that's a easy seven figure case that, that should have been won. And, you know, we zeroed them. And it was I felt bad for the plaintiff, quite yeah. frankly. And and that's one example of several where you're like, geez, you know, this they really some of the lawyers on their side need to be better. Then on the, the other side of it, I've been up against some outstanding lawyers across the country, um, Joe Free being one of them, where you see how they work. And it's like, OK. You know, this is this is the type of lawyer that I consider myself. And I think this is the type of lawyer that people need and really, really deserve if they're going to prosecute these cases. So it was kind of a the timing worked out right. Uh, the opportunity was there. Um, and it was a time in my career. I kind of joke with my wife. I'm in halftime. Uh, yeah. So I needed to do it now or I would never do it. Uh, so I, I, I decided to, to make the jump. And I honestly, I couldn't be happier. Um, part of it, too, is as a defense lawyer, it's all about risk management. It's all about, you know, losing a case is oftentimes winning a case. You know, I could get hit for $2 million and walk away and be high-fiving my client. Um, and that's a that's an experience that's, that's tough to swallow if you're a competitive person where it's like, okay, you really have to relearn what a win is. Um, but in doing plaintiff's work, they I've seen, at least in the year I've been doing it, that I've been able to be way more creative. I've been able to really, you know, I hate the term thinking outside the box, but, you know, think outside the box on how I approach cases, um, really kind of utilize some of the uh, some of the, the lessons that have been taught. And, and, you know, all these all these books, a lot of really, really good lawyers have put out there. I poo pooed a lot of this when I was a defense lawyer. I used to call, you know, the reptilian, uh, you know, theory. I said, oh, that's a, a crutch for the mediocre trial lawyer is what yeah. I used to call it. And then, you know, boy, you start really looking into the effectiveness of some of these techniques from a David Ball, et cetera. And it's like, well, objectively speaking, this stuff's working. And yeah. it's, you know, you look around now with the with the nuclear verdicts, as the insurance defense industry likes to call them. Uh, you look around. And, I like to call them fair verdicts, but yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a reason for the uptick in these verdicts. And it's 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 this almost a common uh, approach to litigating these cases, which really is almost indefensible. You can't defend the way really good plaintiff's lawyers are prosecuting these cases. Uh, you know, it's, what is it's almost way? impossible. What, what is it you can't defend? Well, with these cases that you see where, you know, UPS is the exception to the rule with respect to their safety program. You know, UPS actually has a, a, a safety program and they put millions of dollars, if not tens of millions of dollars a year into it. Um, that's, as you well know, is the exception to the rule. If everybody did what UPS does, not to say UPS doesn't ha make mistakes and they don't have drivers that make mistakes, it, they do. And, and it's they've got 120,000 power units on the road at any given time. You're going to have somebody that makes a mistake just, you know, by, by virtue of statistics, right? But it's typically not a lack of UPS trying to train that driver to not do what he does. In these other cases you see with these other companies, these fly-by-night companies, or even some of the bigger companies that just don't really care to train. They don't want to put their money there because what is that? That's money that could be going in their own pockets. Right. So instead of putting the money to training, they just rely on this idea that, well, we get a CDL trained driver. That's all we need to do. He's trained you know, to, to drive a, a, a tractor trailer, and I'm going to put him on the road. We're good to go. And those cases, as you've seen, you're attacking really the company as opposed to the driver. You're almost making the driver sympathetic to a jury. Absolutely. 
And when you do that, it's it's a very, very, very difficult uh, bell to unring when it, when it becomes about the company as opposed to the, the person sitting in the driver's seat. As a defense lawyer, I always like to say, like, hey, this is all about, I would tell courts this, this is all about the five seconds. This isn't, you know, right. this isn't about the three months prior. This is about the five seconds in this accident. If you can make it about the three months prior or the three years prior and really delve into what hasn't been done here to protect the motoring public, you're you're going to be in good shape as a plaintiff's lawyer. You know, and, and I think that's it's very, very difficult to defend. Absolutely. Um, you know, you can you can yell all you want that that, you know, well, you know, I admitted course and scope so they can't get into it. But when we have punitives on the table, it's going to come in. And there's lots of states, obviously, that that, that allow it in in any event. So yep. Texas may or may not be one of those. We're where are you guys now? I can't remember. Well, there is an old there's some old case law that says that you admit to course and scope. Then all the rest is out unless you have uh, gross negligence. Yeah. There is a more recent case saying that when we switch to the comparative fault statute that, that says that the negligence of each defendant shall be considered, which means you would have to look at both the employer and the employee separately. Okay. Uh, especially if you're putting in the plaintiff's comparative fault. Yeah. You need to look what everybody did. Uh, and then there's some federal cases going both ways where some are adopting the old, some new. Our Supreme Court, it got up to them uh, and they punted. They said... Well, there's a big question in the law as to whether this this line of case law is right or that line of case law is right, but we don't have to decide it because there was no evidence that it was an negligent training case. There okay. was no evidence that training would have made a difference. So since there was no evidence of causation, we'll just reverse and render rather than uh, I, uh, worrying this, about it. Yeah, this area of the law, we started, you know, uh, frankly, we started uh, filing motions for summary judgment on direct negligence claims on behalf of uh, defendants, EPS, probably more than 10 years ago. Um, and, and frankly, at the time, we were kind of on the leading edge of it. It was kind of yeah. a novel novel area of, of defense. And it it blossomed and has kind of taken over. But if you, I'm still waiting for, we could do a whole podcast on just that issue and how to really overcome that. Because the public policy, I don't think, supports what courts are doing when they don't allow you to prosecute. Because the... The, when we talk about the five seconds, it's what got us to those five seconds. I'm 100% with and it's, you. But and I've never seen it articulated really, really well by the plaintiff's bar is to argue why why that that training is so important to describe to, to, to let the jury know what happened in those events. That this driver didn't know how to respond or he put himself in a position to have an accident because of the training in those three years or whatever prior. Right. It's, it's you know, I, I don't know you can have. And I think it's especially important in cases where they're trying to submit the responsibility of someone else. I mean, it's amazing. In one of my cases, I mean, uh, they just moved for protective order on a on a number of depositions we have saying, well, this is just a simple run stop sign case. Uh, we don't need to go into all the training and everything else. But they also want to designate the employer of the driver of our vehicle as a responsible third party for not having a training program. In the same hearing, it was just amazing. Um, Boy, that's talking about uh, both sides of your mouth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they said, "What's well, apples and oranges? It's apples and oranges," and we're going to go finish the hearing later this month. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, that's interesting. And of course, ignoring our pleadings, and we've pled for punitive damages, but you have to play for it. I mean, there's a great public policy arguments to be made. A lot of judges don't care, uh, but they do care about what their case law is. And so many people come to me after the summary judgment has been filed. Uh, the pleadings deadline has passed. Uh, the, discovery, the depots have been done, and then they say, "Well, how do I overcome this?" It's like, "Well, 
here's some ideas, but what you really need to do is when you file, but when you are drafting your complaint, or we call them petitions in Texas, you need to be thinking about how you're going to overcome this. When you're planning out your discovery, uh, you need to be thinking about how you're going to overcome this. You can't just, you have to do the research in advance. It's not something you can right. wait till the defense has it all set up and then. So I, uh, a friend of mine was on a defense-oriented trucking podcast, which I won't name. <laughs> but in any event, uh, which I like to get, obviously, as much information as oh, I can. Oh, you can name if you want. Oh, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was that Freight Waves, one of those Freight, freight Waves, waves. Okay, yeah, I think, I think the more we learn, yeah. the better. I, I, I read defense stuff all the time. Oh, yeah. No, you should. And, and we can talk about the differences between the defense bar in this area and, and the plants bar because they are stark. But one of the most interesting things that was said in the podcast, which I think speaks very, very well to people like you and Michael Lieserman and Joe Freed and, and you know, Ed Boli and others, is there is a there is a concerted effort now by the insurance industry and and other motor carriers to get cases either resolved as early as possible or just to prevent the introduction of what they're referring to as the second lawyer. Uh, They're starting to see lawyers getting involved in these cases with these cases being referred to them or co-counseling that are concentrating their practices on trucking litigation and they're doing everything they can to resolve these cases before that lawyer gets involved. And you know who we're talking about. I mean, and there's, there's frankly, you know, a, a nice handful of them, but there's, they're, they're not everywhere. Yeah. And, and the, they've made, they've made enough of a mark that it's, it's affected how insurance companies are, are settling pre-suit a lot of cases and just trying to get out from under cases uh, before they get that "quote unquote" second lawyer involved, I just yeah. thought that was really interesting. That you know, people people are hesitant to refer cases out, and I'm telling you right now, from a former defense lawyer, you're 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 not doing yourself any favors. What's funny? We have a case right now that the insurance adjuster is just having fits because we've made it very clear that we not only will not accept the last demand that was made before we got involved in the case, but we won't accept a multiple of that demand. Sure, sure. Uh, or, or, or that offer that was made is no longer, you know. Yeah, that's what, you yeah. know, they, they had demanded, you know, X on the case, and, you know, they just don't understand, like, no, we would never take that amount. That, right. And they, well, that's what they demanded. You, you do as you lose, buddy. I mean, you try to take advantage of someone that didn't know what they are doing, uh, try to sell it to you. The fact that you got them into a bad negotiation posture. Yeah. That's no longer on the table. Now now there's a new sheriff in town and you're gonna have to pay for a value or we're gonna try the case. I, I can't tell you the number of cases I tried where the FMCSRs were affirmatively addressed in pleadings and at trial through expert testimony or otherwise. I will tell you that that the vast majority of lawyers don't even address them. Wow. They just don't. They they they're they're an afterthought, or they're again they're looking at this like, well, you rear-ended my guy, or you were parked, or I was parked. It, you know, how many people have told you that? Oh, I've got this really awful case. Um, you know, my client ran in the back of a, a truck parked inside of the road. It's it's a terrible case. I'm going to reject it. Well, well, stop, stop for a second. Yeah. You know that's not a, a phenomena, right? That's something that happens with with regularity, and it happens with regularity for a reason. And the motor carriers are, are, you know, are taught and are instructed not to do, not to park their vehicles there for that reason. Yeah, we've um, made a lot of money on some of those cases. Now, we've also rejected some of those. There are, certain, sure. you know, your client's drunk. Oh, of course, of course. They have the triangles. I don't care if they have triangles, your client's drunk, but yeah. that's a... No, right, right. Are you in North Carolina where you have a pure contrib so, uh, well, as a bar? Or Virginia uh, or North yeah. Carolina or where else? There's a couple others, two so, others. Uh, no, but... Um, 
yeah, it's a, it's really digging into these cases. These cases aren't, you know, they're not as simple as just a, well, you know, you ran the, yeah, I think you ran the stop sign or not. It's funny that, you know, the, sometimes the, the better the liability is for the collision itself, that what I call the direct or immediate cause of the crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more challenging it is to do that root cause analysis and bring it up to the to the company. Like I was, you know, I was so excited last week. I got to, for the first time in my career, I got to depose a truck driver uh, post guilty plea who tested positive for meth. So there's no more oh. Fifth Amendment. Sure. And we got to talk about, you know, smoking the meth pipe at the truck stop bathroom stall really? before the crash and, you know, where he, you know, how long he, of course, he, he still lied about stuff. He said most of it wasn't his. They found it on his back. Uh, <laughs> a meth addict was lying to you? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the flask of urine wasn't mine. <laughs> but uh, so we have, you know, great liability. I mean, we have, they have, they had dash cam. We see him just crashing into the back of a car for no reason. He lies about it. The dash cam uh, tells the truth. He's high. The cops notice he's high. They arrest him. But then we go back, well, how do you make this about the company? Right. I mean, you know, he passed his pre-employment. He was only there for like six months. He didn't get called up for one of the randoms. Right. Random drug testings that right. required. So what do we do to try to make this case about the company? How could the company have caught it? What rules did they break? Right. Uh, and we're still in the middle of it. I mean, they didn't uh, They didn't ask about former employers. They didn't do inquiries to former employers. But now we have to connect the dots. Would, would that have made a difference? Was there something in one of those former employers? Uh, if there was, that would be a great case. You know, it almost, you know, just just the fact that a company is putting a someone who's smoking meth in the cab of a 80,000-pound tractor trailer is... Uh, is good. It's good. But, but you if want, you could make it like they broke the rules and that's how meth addicts slip through, yes. that's even better. Oh, uh, exponentially more. And so I still have a great case even if I don't. Right. But if I want to really hit the home run, I can't just say, okay. And in fact, uh, someone that was working, the associate that was originally working the case up for me, just I couldn't get her to uh, really push the case because uh, she thought, what's a slam dunk? And, right. you know, I've had to jump in there and just really do a lot more digging and spending more documents and more investigation. And uh, because. It needs to be a bigger case than this one crash. Sure. Now, you know, I was talking. I was telling a little bit about that wrongful death case I have in uh, Philadelphia County right now, where it's on its face, it's it's a hit and run fatality. Um, the guy was prosecuted. He's currently incarcerated for 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 um, for homicide, for vehicular homicide. Yeah. Um, he's spending you know what two to four years or three to six years in a penitentiary in Philadelphia. So you think that case too? Well, okay, great. It was only after you know, and and it was kind of you know presented to me as oh, it's great. This this is, you know, get this thing in suit immediately and, you know, let's 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 have be done with it. And the insurance industry lawyers who are on it, really nice guys, but they're not trucking lawyers. They're, you know, yeah. they, they represent these companies for all sorts of, you know, personal injury, slip and fall stuff and whatever else. So I start digging and it, it turns into a lot more than just a car A, pedestrian B, wrongful death case with already nice aggravating factors about the fact that he drove away and then actually yeah. drove back to the scene after the police had, had responded with another van, another vehicle. 
but it, it involves all of a sudden we realize, well, this is, you know, governed or should have been governed by the FMCSR. And the company is unaware of that fact. And this driver should have had a CDL and the company was unaware of that fact. And you start digging in cases where like that, where you think, well, this is just a slam dunk. You know, I could have just taken that case, not done any digging and settled it for a nice number. Now, all of a sudden we're talking about really aggravating factors because uh, and this a lot of our listeners do trucking work not all of them do so FMCSR is Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations right. CDL is Commercial Driver's License <laughs> correct and so I think you and I talked about it so if you have even if it's a 15 passenger van which is not necessarily a commercial motor vehicle if you're hauling eight or more people for money Right. It becomes one. you got to follow all the rules. Exactly. And so now we have a company that's that's regulated, that's hauling people for profit. Should be. <laughs> well, they are regulated because <laughs> yeah, they're, they're ignoring the regulations. Exactly. Just, exactly. Uh, and so now that's a much bigger thing because they have all these other vans on the road. And then, right, exactly. They have all these other vans on the road, and they were willfully putting drivers out there without commercial driver's license. They were willfully ignorant of, of the regulations that they were subjected to. And, right, and now all of a sudden that little – not little, but a, a really good case with really good, as you put it, direct accident facts right. becomes this monster of a, of a of a case with all these other aggravating facts that in Philadelphia County, uh, I'm hopeful and confident that that is going to be is going to be a, a, a nice result for my client. I hope so. Yeah, I, I know. And I got my meth case. I you know what I told the lawyers working with me is like, like why are you doing all this work? I said, well, because it doesn't take much money to teach a meth ahead of lesson. Yeah. Yeah, it needs to be about the company and what it takes to keep teaching company. That's a great, it's a great way to look at it. Yeah. Each year, the law firm of Callen Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now... Back to the show. I want to kind of follow up on a couple of things. One, you talked about there's some differences between the plaintiff's bar and the defense bar as far as how we interact with each other. <laughs> so um, let me back up. The I I met Joe Freed, I think, in 2005 or 2006. So really, when Joe was starting his focus um, and his laser focus on the trucking industry, I was one of the first cases I had. I defended one of the first cases that, that Joe had uh, in Pennsylvania. It was actually happened to be on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, a UPS case, um, which which Joe did a great job. I didn't go to trial, but I met Joe then. Um, and so in I guess it was probably this past August of 2019 when I had just started doing plaintiff's work for maybe, I don't know how many months before that, six months or so, I, I reached out to Joe um, to reintroduce myself. And, and you know, he was immediately like, oh, my gosh, you've got to join my group. You've got to join our group, the ATAA. Um, and uh, come on down to Nashville. We're, we're having a conference in Nashville. So I thought, OK, you know, I guess, you know, I'll go get some CLEs and I'll watch the boondoggle. And I went down there and I've never seen a seminar 
where people were actually packing packing the place, not getting up and leaving, not going to play golf, not, you know, middle of the seminar, not going to take you know clients to the bar in the middle of the seminar. Uh, they were engaged. They were learning. They were sharing. They were, I mean, it was a, a warm, wel- welcoming environment. It really was. I, 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 I mean that when I say it. And I was kind of struck. I was like, this is crazy. Because you think back, you know, I've been to how many Tyler conferences or the mega conferences, the trucking mega conferences in New Orleans or the DRI trucking conferences. And I've sat on panels in those. And I've spoken those and we've held our sub meetings. Right. It's it's the defense bar wants to give the air of sharing information and, and being helpful. But in reality, they're all they're all competing for the same clients. Right. And there's a finite number of clients out there. So they all want all the clients. They want all that work. And I can't blame them. So when you get a client, you spend these seminars babysitting and hoping that other people right. aren't wooing them or taking them to dinner. You're not concerned about what's going on. You're, you're just concerned about either getting clients or, you know, talking to your client and making sure your client's taken care of. And um, they're, they're, don't get me wrong. They're nice, really nice guys, really nice people at these conferences, defense conferences. But it's just not that sharing yeah, the, way. The abundance mentality we've developed in the truck. And it wasn't always there, but it's been – and Joe is a lot of the reason we have it. And when he became – chair of the trucking litigation group, I noticed a, a change in the environment. Not that it was horrible before, but I noticed that he really pushed and created a better atmosphere of sharing. I think part of it is because he came from the product liability world where we had that ethos before he came into trucking. Right. And then the ATA is definitely, but I'll give you an example. You know, Joe is at the top of the game. Sure. I think he's, he's one of the top two or three, if not the top sure. trucking lawyer in the country. Uh, if he was like a defense lawyer, he'd be wanting to guard that. And you come over, you've got someone that's very experienced in catastrophic injury. And one thing you can say, wow, this Michael Neal guy could be a threat to my practice. Let's bury him. Right. No, he not only does he invite you, he calls me and says, this is a guy you need to have on your podcast. Oh, is because, that right? I didn't even know that. Yeah. And then he texts me your name and number later when I'd forgotten it. Uh, <laughs> and he says that he has a lot to add. He, he, you know, one, he's a good guy. We need to get him involved and get, make sure he's got... He can stay on our side and get good work. Uh, but two, that, you know, he's got something to share. You need to do that, even though that's this is promoting you. Uh, and Joe gets it, though, because and you get it. You you understand that, you know, the, you know, Todd raises all ships. Right. And it's really true that, you know, when when you're doing good work and you're promoting others to do good work, you're not going to get every case. Right. I don't it's want impossible. every case anymore. I, exactly. I realize exactly there is a finite number of hours I want to work per week and to do this right I need to spend a lot of hours per case right Uh, so yeah I want good cases but you know I only want so many and there's plenty unfortunately there's so many horrible things happening on the roadways there's plenty of work for all of us there's plenty of work for everybody and the idea that we're sharing this information terrifies the defense bar and I really mean that Um, I, I had heard about you know the idea of listservs they don't exist in the defense side I mean, they don't have a defense listserv where they're sharing information. Oh, really? No. No, not, not, not that I'm aware. I mean, there might be some insur- like insurance defense, you know, you know, sharing. But as a, as a broad, you know, 
you know, daily used. I mean, you know, the listserv is something that is used daily by us. Yeah. I see things on there every day where I learn something new every single day. I really do. Yeah. Uh, or I see areas where, hey, I'm going to reach out to this person because I've had the same issue 15 times before and it's a new issue to him. And maybe I'll help him and that'll be the end of it. Or maybe I'll call him and I'll help him and he'll call me back a couple of days later and say, you know what? Maybe we could do something together here because you've got more experience than I do with this. Yeah. And the great thing with the plaintiff's bar, though, is that there's not that you know i will help you if you bring me on the case it's right. i will help you and then if it makes you know economic sense i'll let people bring you in anyway sure. but you don't have you don't condition it 100 uh, no it's been that's i think the most stark difference in just the uh the way that information is so freely shared uh on the side of the aisle versus it's it's kind of hoarded over there because everybody wants to be able to sell themselves to their client so it's so once you uh, you crossed over, you know you're doing a different kind of work. Um, to do it right, how about how what size of a docket you think one lawyer can carry? It de- it all depends, honestly, on the type of cases you're doing. Okay, because like if you're doing the big stuff. If you're doing the big stuff, if you want to do the big stuff and you want to do it well, and you want to push cases, uh, listen the 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 defense industry the, the the corporate clients and the insurance industry responds to effort from the other side they have taken advantage of lazy lawyers forever uh, or overworked lawyers too. or well that's that's really that's actually probably better put in many yeah. respects is, is is not so much lazy is, is is overworked where they have a big case but they just don't push it they they push in the same manner they're pushing their like I said before their hundred thousand dollar car A car B case they're pushing that $5 million potentially um, commercial motor vehicle case in the same way. If you push cases and you you make them know that you know what you're talking about and your, your, disco- your written discovery is pointed and direct and substantive and your depositions are on point and you're taking the order of the depositions properly, you know, you're deposing the safety director and then, you know, oftentimes I say, well, you, when do you want to depose my driver? And now as a plant lawyer, I'm like... I'll get to him. He's the last one I need to talk to. I'm going to get everything else before I talk to him. And I'm going to put him in a position where he's going to say what I want him to say because I already have the case locked in. A lot of guys are like, oh, let me just take the deposition of the driver first. More, Probably more people than not would do that. Um, if you go about... I think there are cases we should. We'll talk about that later. There are sometimes. Yeah. No, I don't disagree with that. I'm just talking in generalities. Yeah. But... Um, I, I, this is a long way to answer my to answer your question being that if, if I had my druthers, I would have 10 big cases at any one time yeah. and I would push them uh, and just strangle the life out of the defendants in those cases and then move on to another one. I, I think, know that's not necessarily. I think that's about right because my partner, Sonia, I think has like 13 or 14 and I'm trying to get her to accept an associate because she is, I mean, just working her butt off on that. And it's the smallest doctor she's ever had. Right. And then Mallory has has an associate and has just over, just around 20. And again, they're, they're doing very well, but they are working a lot of hours, even with, with you know, 10 cases per lawyer on that docket, with me helping out, too. Right. Uh, so it's really like two and a half people on that docket. And it's still... It's still like there's things we could do if we had more time. If there are substantive, uh, valuable, you know, mid seven figure and up cases, 
10 of them is plenty. Yeah, and there's and, plenty of money. And not only that, when you have that, and I don't want to say few because, as you just said, it's still a lot. Yeah. But when you have that number, you can do things with those cases that you just can't do when you've got 50 or 100 cases on your docket. You know, where you can you can focus group that group them accurately and, and you can do it early and often if necessary, if the case asks for it. You can depose people who you may not have deposed, you know, because, well, I don't have time to take that guy's deposition right. in another case where you do and now. And, boy, you'd be amazed. As I'm sure you know. You'd be amazed. Some some of those depositions when you think, ah, what do I take it or not? I just deposed a, um, the, the inspector for the uh, Port Authority of New York, New Jersey. And literally going to him, I was like, ah, I did. I, I was jammed up the day before. I didn't prepare as much as I wanted to. And I was half hearted going into, but it was scheduled. He's pretty high up, obviously. And I'm like, all right. Ended up being one of the best depositions of the cases. I got so much information out of him that I that I absolutely was unaware of. That's a deposition that a lot of people might have just said, you know what, just cancel it. I don't need him. I've got everything I need already. Well, I did have everything I need. Now I've got more. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that that number is an ideal number. Is it realistic? For some people, it is. And that's you've put your you've put yourself in a position where it is. And I know I think Joe Freed actually you know, operates with a similar mindset. I'd love to get there because I actually yeah. like pushing cases like that. I think the only ways to get there is one, you could be like uh, Michael Userman and just have the discipline to only take those cases and to say no are to to develop a firm around you where you have other people to take the other size cases and, to, and and go on and then you just have to have either join someone else's firm and be the, the specialist or develop a firm that has enough systems and guidance and coaching where the other cases will still get worked upright without you having to personally yeah which is what I've what I'm attempting to do with my firm it's what I'm attempting to do as well okay yeah. so uh, you go out you decide you want to become a plaintiff lawyer uh how do you get work? I mean, you've, you've got experience, but you've not done plaintiff's cases before. How do you get people to bring you in on these cases or how do you get clients? I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I was in a fortunate position where I, I, I got some work from another lawyer just who had needed needed help immediately. And uh, that, that was great. It was a great opportunity to get my feet wet, you know, on the plaintiff's bar. Remember where to sit in the courtroom and yeah. <laughs> things like that. <laughs> but um, now it's 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 been a matter of, of things like this and then the ATA meetings. And it is just part of putting my experience out there and, and getting some traction where you get a little bit of trust when you get people like Joe Freed mentioning your name and yeah. introducing you to people saying, Hey, this guy, you know, he knows what he's talking about in these areas. And, you know, I've probably litigated more delivery uh, truck uh, cases than, uh, geez, I don't know than anybody uh, that I'm, that I'm aware of just by nature of the work that I did for so long. And that area has kind of been developing for me a little bit where people are, are bringing me in on cases uh, that involve delivery trucks, delivery vehicles. Um, it's just a, it's just a matter of kind of getting some traction, which I'm starting to see now. So it's um, just been networking basically. Yeah. Are you yeah. doing mostly attorney referral then? Not yeah, yeah. trying to go direct to the public? Well, I'll tell you, I am. Um, I, I have not tried to go direct to the public absent, uh, you know, talking to some 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 Teamster business managers, things like that. Um, the problem with direct to the public is that, you know, for what every call you could, even if you had a great marketing plan, for every call you would get, which would be a case you want to work on, you're going to get 100, 200, 300 calls for other kinds of cases. Right. right. Uh, and it's hard to make a marketing budget that will, especially somewhere like Philadelphia, which is crazy as far as competitive for lawyers, sure. uh, that could bring in those cases and afford to only take the ones you want. I mean, if you have to bring in 2,000 cases to get 20, it doesn't 
work unless you can take some of those other cases or get someone else to work those other cases. So it, right. that's why we've gone to almost pure attorney referral. Uh, well, and, you know, it, it's it's the type of work, especially with the attorneys who I'm, I don't want to say marketing to, but that I'm yeah. introducing myself to, that I'm becoming, frankly, friends with a lot of them. They're handling and they're getting cases of the type that I know how to handle and I and I yeah. and I know how to litigate. So it's worked out in that way that it's not as though I'm I'm getting a bunch of people asking me to get involved in mental yeah. cases or stuff like that. And the other thing is the if you feel comfortable talking to this or not, just say sure. no and edit it out. Sure. Uh, you know, going from being paid to work on cases to having to not only wait but then fund cases. Sure. How do you make that adjustment? Uh, it's it's it, that is an adjustment and that's a uh, you know my wife keeps calling it a two-year plan so we'll, we'll see at the end of two years but no it's a completely different animal with respect to how you're compensated on this side of the ledger which i knew getting into it uh, a lot of this was a leap of faith and having confidence in my skills and 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 maybe a lot of it is naivete that i thought i could just jump in and do it yeah. um but either way um I, I knew getting into it that I was going to have to bite the bullet for, for at least uh, a couple of years uh, compensation wise. And, you know, I can't complain. I, I had a really nice situation where I was um, and it would have remained a nice situation, but it was never going to be. You know, you were never going to get those, uh, you know, awards that you get on an eight-figure or big verdict. And and the money, don't get me wrong, the money is part of it. You start giving big checks to mediocre lawyers, you start to <laughs> wonder, like, why am I not on the end of, yeah. other end of this conversation? But a lot of it, too, has to do with looking at it and just saying – Listen, I think I could make that a bigger case. I think I could do – I've just been curious and I've really, yeah. really wanted to just just take big cases and make them bigger. And I hate to break it to you, but to get the real big, it's more than a two-year plan. Because <laughs> no. what happens is that, you know, I think right now you're teaming up with other people. Right. Uh, so you're not – maybe not funding 100 percent of all the expenses and everything. Yep. Uh, at some point you have to say, well, I want to be able to fund more of this and get a bigger piece of it. Or sure. For me, it was what I could afford to fund, and so then you have to defer gratification. No, that's uh, absolutely true. And put that money towards funding new cases, or putting it in a very liquid investment so you can use it as collateral for a line of credit, right. uh, so that you can fund the cases or something. But you just, you know, you to really make it big on the plaintiff side uh, and to have it sustainable. Uh, it takes years of, okay, I, I got my big hit, but I'm not going to spend it all. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. You couldn't be more correct. And I am, I'm in the process of, and I think, you know, Ed's here in Bowling. Yeah. Uh, and, and Ed's very active in the trucking industry. So Ed and I, through Joe as, as, as matchmaker, as Joe would like to call himself, uh, Joe Freed likes to call yeah. himself, um, put Ed and I together. And it turns out, you know, Ed and I are both from Northeastern Pennsylvania and uh, we really hit it off and we really have a shared vision of where we would like to, how we would like to organize a practice and, yeah. and, and really focus on the same things you're focusing on um, and, and do it a little bit different than other people are doing it, certainly in Pennsylvania. Uh, so yeah, Ed, Ed did Greg Fellerman. So it's Fellerman and Sirimboli. So I will be joining them effective March 1st and uh, opening a Philadelphia office for them. And well, that will be, uh, when we go live, it will be after March 1st. Yeah, so yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, people now, what's the firm going to be called? 
It's it's Fillerman and Ciaramboli. Okay. Um, but I'm, I'm you know so I'll be uh, I'll be in the Philadelphia I'll be I will be the Philadelphia office awesome. uh, out of the gate. Yeah. No, we're really excited and uh, we've got some really I think interesting uh, marketing ideas and where to target some work. Playing on my experience, especially with package car cases. Listen, there's lots of guys out there who yourself included who have developed these wonderful trucking practices. I really think I can add value in any package car case, especially from a liability aspect and prosecuting the liability cases because I've seen them all. I mean, I've, I've literally practiced across the country uh, in, in defending these cases. I really know where to attack. And I'm going to kind of, like I said, a, a lot of our listeners are going to know instinctively what you're doing, but not everyone, you know, the 3,000 people that are going to listen to this uh, are people that are handling these kind of cases every day. So my understanding, the package car cases, so if you're 26,001 pounds or more, then you're a commercial motor vehicle under the federal rules. Correct. Sometimes, but not always, 10,001 pounds or more uh, it can be considered a commercial motor vehicle. But there are a lot of vehicles owned by companies that are on the road a lot that are not, quote unquote, commercial motor vehicles. The regulations do not apply to them. Correct. So what are some of the challenges then in... You get a case with an unregulated vehicle, like a package delivery van. Sure. For me, it's an oil field company's pickup truck. Yep. Um, how do you then set roles when we don't have the crutch of the, the federal government doing it for us? Well, yeah, you know, you have to develop the standard of care in that industry. And it's it's a matter of kind of uh, seeing what training they're providing their drivers, if any, and really treating it as though the federal rules apply without ever being able to cite to the federal rules, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, large companies, you know, and, and delivery companies are the easy, easy ones to talk about because everybody sees them every day at their house more and more. I mean, I was telling somebody the other day, I, I woke up on a Tuesday. I uh, realized that, you know, I went through the last of our, I like to get these big chunky soap from La Cetane. So yeah. I realized, oh, we were out. I went to work and it was like 11 and I remembered. I went on Amazon, I ordered them. I got home at seven o'clock that night and my five bars of soap were at my house. That It was six hours later. And those are going to be some complex cases because not only do you not have the federal rules to uh to fall back on, but Amazon claims that all those drivers are independent contractors. They're all independent contractor cases, yep, uh, with Amazon. And and it's not only Amazon. You know, DHL has similar where they subcontract. You know, you'll see a DHL driver show up at your, your house or with a DHL uniform on with a, in a DHL van. He'll tell you, or DHL would tell you, well, he's not, he doesn't work for DHL. FedEx does the same thing. Oh, and they always have, yeah. But if you really look at the law... And you know this is going to be an issue before you start your case. So you look up, okay, in my jurisdiction, what do I have to prove to prove employee rather than independent contractor? You know, because uh, you can't just contract away out of liability to third parties. Right. Uh, and then what's my plan for proving? You'll usually prove that they're an agent or employee. If yeah. not, there's still negligent selection. They're still their vehicles and they choose who drives them. And, you know, then there's... They do some kind of training, then they have negative, they've undertaken the duty to do it right. And there's a million ways to do that and still make it about the company, but you have to know, you have to think about it before you start your lawsuit. You can't wait till you get that summary judgment saying, we're an independent contractor, they're an independent contractor, you can only sue them. You've, you've summarized it better than I could. I, I, I just like to say, there's a million ways to skin this cat, yeah. but you have to know how to skin the cat. You have to know the different ways and you need to be able to, to go after, if it's gonna be just agency issues, you're gonna have to go through the agency issues. If it's going to be negligent selection, you have to know that area of the law and you have to be able to prosecute those issues and plead them properly. And it's it's folks who, who oh my gosh, I uh, uh, an Amazon truck just hit a, you know, 
my my client killed a client. This is a huge case. You know, I'm going to retire on this case. Well, it's not that easy. You really need to know what you're doing. You need to dive into that. You need to really know that area of the law. And that's just to get the proper parties on the hook. Yeah. Then you've got to know how to how to actually prosecute your liability case there, um, which those cases are different than a car A, car B case. And those cases are different from a tractor trailer case. Absolutely. They're kind of their own cases. They're in different uh, environments. They're typically in a more urban or suburban environment. They're typically at lower speed, so you have different injuries. You know, uh, you've got a lot of TBI cases we're seeing more and more of uh, in, in package delivery cases, uh, or or these these van cases like we're talking about. Um, but they're they're just a different animal that you kind of need to know how to how to attack. Listen, if you really want to be successful in any area of the law you're going to practice, I'm not saying that every personal injury lawyer needs to specialize like Joe Freed does or or you do. But it, it doesn't hurt to, to try to perfect your practice and perfect what you're doing. And if you're doing even amounts of med mount, product liability, slip and fall, uh, you know, you name it, uh, and trucking worker and package delivery cases, you're never going to do any one of those as well as you could if you focus more on one than the others. Uh, so if you've got a big case, you think you've got a big case, and I know you said this before, find someone who who's a specialist in that area and at least reach out to them and, and pull their ear on it and try to learn as much about that area as you can. Yeah, we find often people end up making more money after they work with us than they would have had they done on their own because they, they you know, they, and and frankly, some people, they work with us on a few and then they can do most of them on their own and then either don't come back or they come back on the biggest or the big ones. And then, yeah. and then you know, and we don't mind. We share what we do. We're, Absolutely. Like, again, there's there's more work out there than I care to do. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. No, I just, I, I, I love getting engaged. And I've seen, because of the nature of the, of the ATAA and the AHA trucking group where it's a national group and they all share information, I've seen, you know, people across the country. And I've had the real benefit of, I've litigated in over 30 states. I've tried cases in 13 different states have kind of been, you know, the, I know the difference between voir dire and voir dire. <laughs> You'd be amazed at the number of people who look at you when you say voir dire in the Northeast. So like, you don't know what you're voir talking about. Yeah, yeah you, don't, you don't know what you're talking about. I would but, have to take elocution lessons to try a case and you're like, voir dire. Well, I, I have trouble saying it. But. Yeah. But uh, I, I've been lucky enough to practice across the country. And it's funny because when I started doing plaintiff's work, you know, I'm in Philadelphia County, which is a fantastic county for plaintiff's lawyers, as you all know. Uh, and I thought, well, here we go. I'm going to be in my bed every night. And, yep. you know, here I am. And I, what I've seen is because of the nature of my background and those people that are asking to kind of, hey, maybe you might be able to get involved and help me out a little bit. None of it's in Philadelphia yet. Well, I shouldn't say that. Some of it is, but the majority of it's been outside. And I love it. It really I, I enjoy you know, helping people in different areas and different parts of the country and different courts. It's like you're in my office in San Antonio here because someone's yeah. bringing you in on some Texas cases. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to just go back to the non-CDL cases a little bit. So, you know, I think one advantage you have having represented UPS is that, you know, while they're not perfect, UPS does it pretty well when it comes to safety training and safety policies. So I guess that gives you some background of what the industry standards should be. But when you have the case uh, against one of these other companies that doesn't do it as well, how do you prove the industry standard? What do you look to? With 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 areas of, of you know, defending or and prosecuting now uh, 
package delivery cases, for instance. You know, I really look to see how they're training their drivers. I mean, at UPS, you'll see anybody who's had a UPS package car case, as they call their delivery vehicles, yeah. or a feeder truck case is what they call their, their tractor trailers. Anybody who's had one of any plaintiff's lawyer who's had one of each of those sees that, wow, their, their training and their record keeping for both of those d- groups right. are very, very similar. And, and in those cases, it's, well, really, UPS, while they haven't, and they're not subject to the FMCSR with respect to their package delivery drivers, they really treat them almost in their training and development as though they are. Well, that's unusual. It is unusual. But really, you know, if you were to have a case against another, you know, whether it be a DHL, for instance, you can easily point to industry. They know what UPS does. They know how UPS trains their drivers. And DHL, for instance, they have both a package delivery arm uh, as well as, I believe, a, a, you know, they have a much smaller uh, tractor trailer division, but they yeah. still have one. Amazon has a delivery service as well as a, you see the Amazon tractor trailers on the road. These companies know, so they know the FMCSRs, they know the standards that they're required under those, and they know the applicability to their non-CDL uh, drivers. It's just as easy to train them under the same regulations, even yeah. though they're not required to. But you can find companies that do. And I think also, you know, there's an ANSI standard, yep. uh, American National Standard Institute for Fleet Vehicle. There is a That's Natural right. Safety Council mm-hmm. has things out there. I think actually the Centers for Disease Control, when it comes to distracted driving actually has put out recommended practices. Oh, because, is that right? I haven't seen well, that. Because uh, distracted driving, I'll give you a copy before you leave. Yeah. Distracted driving is enough of a, of a health hazard oh. that even the CDC has been involved in trying to encourage employers to to train its drivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though you think, well, that's an obvious hazard. It's not. A, a, people know it's, it's bad to text and drive, but people think, well, I can just go look at a text real quick and it's not unsafe when I do it. Right. And they don't realize that the average time off the road is five seconds. They don't oh. realize. I mean, between, before your attention's fully, even though your eyes might come back before your attention's fully back on the driving task, and they don't realize that on a highway you're going, you know, 88 feet per second at 60 miles an hour, you're going <laughs> 440 feet, a football field and a half during those five seconds when you look at one text. How many times since you've been doing this and knowing those statistics like I do, and I, I flew helicopters in the in the National Guard. Oh, wow. Well, you know, my, my prior life. But, you know, I'm constantly doing a time, speed, distance yeah. analysis in my head. And, you know, the same thing. I've got a 16-year-old who I'm, I'm teaching to drive. She's got her driver's you know, permit now. She doesn't have a license yet. And it's the same thing I'm teaching her. You know, listen, when you glance down to change the radio station on the highway and it takes you two seconds, how far do you think you've moved? And what could other people have done during exactly. that? Exactly. <laughs> you know, the car that's the car that's in front of you to the left is now immediately in front of you slowing down by the time you look up. Yep. Um, it's uh, these are all lessons that I've I've taken taken to heart in my in my driver training. Well, Mike, uh, I could talk to you all day, but we've got, uh, you know, limit how long a podcast can be. Uh, so at the end, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, uh, whether it's to bring you on a case or just to ask you a question, because I know you'll answer questions without remuneration. Uh how do they find you? Sure. Well, I mean, I'm going to give my cell phone. I've heard other people do it. You're crazy. And, uh, I, well, you might think so, but I'm going to, because this is the phone. I, I travel enough and this is the phone that I'm always on. Okay. So it's 215-776-5070. Uh, I can also be reached when this comes out at the email mjo at fclawpc.com. 
Fellerman.com. Uh, and again, that'll be at, at Fellerman and Ciaramboli, which I'm, I'm very excited to be starting at and uh, and uh, growing their, their trucking and transportation practice, hopefully to, to new heights. Great. And yeah. we're going to have all that information in the show notes. So if you didn't catch that, if you're driving right now, don't write it down. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, don't, don't look away from the road. It, it will be there. Thank you so much. No, no, no. It's a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join a private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.